welcome to Beyond Consulting, brought to you by ECA Partners. For those of you joining us for the first time, we are the only podcast dedicated to helping our listeners understand the wide variety of options they have available to them after a career in consulting. Put more bluntly, what can I do with my life after countless hours spent in PowerPoint and Excel? I'm Ken Canera, host of Beyond Consulting and CEO of ECA Partners, a specialized project staffing and executive search firm focused on former management consultants and private equity. Each week, I get to host guests that have spent time in consulting and made some sort of pivot or career change. The goal is to help our audience understand all the options that they have available to them and ideally learn from our guests, both in terms of what they did right and things they wish they would have done differently. Today, we welcome Devin Basinger to the studio. Devin, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, certainly. Uh, really glad to be here with you. Glad to talk about consulting. Glad to talk about what I did after and excited to dive in. Awesome. So Devin, um, for those of you, for those of our listeners that don't know you, would love to just kind of get a, get some background on yourself and, and, and kind of uh, what has taken you here uh, to, uh, to kind of like where you are today at H1. Yeah, totally. So uh, let's see. I started my my work in Accenture management consulting. And um, that meant a combination of different things. Uh, I'm sure we'll get a little bit into that, but a little bit of change management, a little bit of big tech implementations, did some strategy consulting work, particularly with nonprofits, and uh, was ultimately, you know, like doing the bread and butter work of Accenture, which is like large scale tech implementations, uh, $100 million contracts, you know, that type of thing. And, um, I really enjoyed that work uh, while I was there. I was there about three and a half years, ended up leaving to go to business school, which felt like the right next move for me. I ended up at MIT Sloan. I was already living in Boston at the time. So when I left Accenture to go to MIT, it was like a, you know, very carefree walk across the bridge. And I picked up my student ID and then started classes, you know, a few weeks later. And it was, it was like a, a really good, easy transition. And um, when I was at Sloan, I ended up starting a company. The company was called DeepBench. DeepBench was an expert network. And we matched up uh, industry experts with consultants, but also investors and designers who were looking for uh, user interviews or expert interviews. I worked on that business for a few years as a founder and I was a COO of that business. And then uh, it turned into a good business and it's still doing really good work and it's still growing fast. But uh, I felt like it was the right move for me to kind of join like a hyper growth tech company. Uh, and I did that. I left. I ended up joining a company called H1. H1 is a healthcare data platform. When I joined H1, it was still a very small company. It was about 15 people. And in Y Combinator, uh, the accelerator in California, and um, we were getting ready to raise our Series A, and this is right before the pandemic. This is uh, February 2020. So we ended up raising the Series A right as the pandemic started. Uh, so while you know that people were figuring out COVID 19, we were going on a hiring spree and starting to grow. Uh, we grew our revenue a lot. We grew our company a lot, and now it's been about two and a half years. The company is close to 500 people at this point, and my my job has shifted a lot at H1 throughout that growth. But right now, I'm responsible for people and operations within H1. 
That's incredible. So starting a healthcare data platform in the midst of what was one of the the, the most devastating health pandemics uh, that, that, that we've that we've ever seen. Um, I I want to dive into that, but so first, I guess okay. Talk, uh, you know, you mentioned kind of like healthcare data platform. What is it that H one does specifically, and and what is what does that mean? So H one collects. Uh, effectively builds doctor profiles with data from around the world. So there's a big problem in healthcare and healthcare data, which is essentially that healthcare data is really messy. And when you are a life science company trying to invest in uh, treatment research or drug research, a really important piece of the puzzle for effectively doing that research is who are the right doctors that I should work with. And when they're doing that research, they're looking globally. But because there's different data standards and a lot of you know, different data around the world, it can be hard to really have reassurance that you're using the best person possible for the research that you're targeted on. And so H1 collects all that information, puts them into doctor profiles, and effectively acts as like a Google search engine for who's who in healthcare. And now customers will use uh, H1 to look through millions of profiles of healthcare professionals around the world and hone in on uh, who the best doctors or healthcare practitioners are for them to work with on their project, given whatever very specific set of criteria. So it effectively helps them understand who they should be collaborating with. That's incredible. And can you maybe just give us like an example, just so we can put put a little bit of muster behind it? Totally. So yeah, so imagine, you know, like imagine COVID-19, um, the pandemic comes up, people are trying to rush towards uh, like a vaccine research or trying to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. In that, type of a, uh, in that type of scenario, the companies who are investing into the research really want to find the right treatment quickly. And uh, they really need to go through this regulatory process of, you know, getting a vaccine approved. But one of the things that can help them cut down their timeline is finding the right principal investigator who's done infectious disease research in the past, who also can be, you know, influential in the regulatory process, who also can, um, you know, help get access to the right patients or medical centers that have impacted patients. So for, you know, COVID-19, a lot of people were impacted. So access to patients wasn't really the issue, but they still wanted to make sure to have the best experts. And in a situation like that, getting the, you know, uh, top infectious disease expert compared to like the number 40 infectious disease expert could cut down your time to market by a year or, or even four months, which in the context of a pandemic is game changing for the outcome of the, the research and the commercialization of that research. That's incredible. And so, so timely, you know, given what was going on in the world. Um, so, it, so is it, is it safe to say that you're mainly kind of, most of your end clients are large kind of pharmaceutical companies and biotechs? Yeah, our first customers were really medical affairs uh, teams within life science companies. And medical affairs teams are kind of like the research collaborators within uh, within life science companies. You know, they go work with doctors, they share the latest research, they get their advice on research that they're doing. And so medical affairs is really our 
first market as a startup. When we were 15 people, we were mostly serving medical affairs teams. Now we've expanded use cases. It turns out if you have that kind of doctor information around the world, you're able to use it a lot of different ways in healthcare, not just with life science companies, but with digital health startups and with medical centers and payers or insurers. And so now there's a lot of different ways we're able to use that database. But yes, our, our first customer was really like life science companies. That's that's great. Yeah. And, and I'm sure like many things, you'll you'll continue to discover other use cases. I, I mean, I, I can even imagine that there's got to be a, some interest from different kind of like universities and stuff like that as well. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, well, good. No, that's uh, that that's very, very uh, interesting story and interesting time to join a company, uh, you know, given that the, the pandemic was kind of just, you know, in the in the first wave. Um, OK. And, and so help me understand, Devin, exactly kind of like what you do. So you do everything from kind of like strategy to people ops, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's changed a lot over time, but I'll, I'll give you the walkthrough. It's a quick walkthrough, but you can imagine that, you know, when you're employee number 15 in a 15 person company, like the things that they need you to do are different than the things they need you to do when you're a hundred people or 300 people or 500 people. And, um, in a lot of ways I've been able to grow up kind of with the company. And so that's presented a lot of opportunities for me. But when I first joined, one of the first things that I was focused on was really the the combination of the fundraising process and the business strategy that we would use in the narrative for the setting the, you know, the ambition of the company. So what do we, what is our vision? What is our ambition? What are we moving towards? What are we using the money that we raise to invest in so that we can achieve our, our mission as a company? And in that sense, it was related to fundraising. It was related to strategy. It was related to vision. And um, that was the core of my responsibility for probably the first four, four or five months. And then it morphed into, okay, now we have our vision, but we need help creating some new products to expand past our initial market. So you know, in a fast growing company, there wasn't a lot of capacity for launching brand new products. And so I was kind of assigned to be like a entrepreneur within the company where I got a small team of a couple, a few engineers and a product person and kind of like a biz dev person to help us do customer validation. And then we went out and tried to find what are the next products that we should build after our, our first product. So it kind of bled into product strategy. And then that led itself to partnerships and that led itself to operations and then that led itself to a couple acquisitions uh, that we did and then along the way one of the challenges that we had while we were scaling was really people related so in the trajectory of our company you know we went from uh, in 2020 we went from about 15 people to 100 people in 2021 we went from about 100 people to 400 people and so you know we're just growing so quickly in relation to the size of our gro- or like rate of our growth and um at about at about 100 people scaling culture became really important so it wasn't good enough just to you know hire better people or hire better managers or hire, you know, more, more engineers, but it really became like, how do we keep everybody focused in the same way that we want people to be working together to the vision that we're working towards and culture kind of became the answer to that. So I started doing culture work for the company. I started doing all of the trainings for everybody that joined the company. So almost everybody that joined from the last 400 people got a training, you know, from me when, when they were able to, when they joined and, um, that kind of led itself naturally to supporting our recruiting teams, supporting our uh, HR. Like, how do we how do we uh, create a positive employee experience for team members that join? And then the that responsibility came 
became very formal um, a few months ago. Prior to that, I was leading our operations team. And then a few months ago, I started leading our people and operations team. So now I get to do some biz ops, uh, still involved in a lot of things around the company from operations perspective, but also, you know, like supporting our people team in India and in the US to hire the best people and keep the best people. Doesn't sound like you're very busy at all. Uh, just, just, just the only. So just let me get this straight. So just product strategy, operations, partnerships, and then and then people. Uh, just, just, just that little bit. The uh, no, I mean, all kidding aside. Um, you mentioned something interesting, which is kind of like around. Okay, you, you reach that hundred person mark, and then you're trying to scale and retain the culture that has been built, right? Um, how, I mean, how do you think about that beyond just? obviously kind of like an intro training and, and that sort of thing. How do we think? So how do you think about scaling or how do you think about like my own role in that scaling? No, I guess. How do you think about main, maintaining the existing culture that oh, yeah. has, has led to so much of the success? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, really honest, like pretty tough challenge. You know, it's not something that you can just kind of like dive in and say, I'm going to do these tasks and it's going to work, right? Yeah, create some KPIs yeah. and, and go for yeah. it, right? It's, yeah. it's really a question of like, what is the heart of the company? And that sounds like very soft and, you know, like um, it's it's something that being a founder trained me to do well. Um, being a consultant maybe didn't train me as well to do that. But I think, um, you know, the way I approached it was we hit like an inflection point around 100 people where different teams in the business were having a hard time working together because they had different cultural approaches to getting the work done. So some teams had kind of like a move fast and break things mentality. And then other teams had a, you know, a cautious culture for their team. We don't want to make mistakes. We want to make sure everything's done right the first time. We're going to take a longer period of time to do that. And that kind of led to clashes when different departments needed to work together on really important projects. So I was assigned to kind of help figure out what kind of company did we want to be. And the way I ended up approaching it was I spent, I did a lot of interviews. Uh, If you think about like deep bench interviews, you know, when you're doing diligence, you'll do a lot of expert interviews to figure out a a holistic picture of what's going on. That's basically what I did for culture. I talked to our founders for hours. I talked to our executive leadership team uh, also for hours. And I went back to those core employees that had been there for a long time, longer than me, um, that had really seen the company grow from its infancy. And they kind of had a really good pulse on the heart of the company, even if they didn't really define it that way. And then I took inputs from all those people and said, you know, this is what I observe. This is what I think we actually care about. And this is how I would say that. And then really rallying buy-in and managing the change management process to get people to buy into not just what you think the heart is, but really also how you're articulating what what you think the purpose of the company is and what type of company you're you're aspiring to be. And then um, it's it's a tough change management problem. I think that is some, just, I know the theme generally is what do we learn from consulting? One of the main things I learned from consulting that I didn't appreciate at the time was really that change management process. When I was a, an, a consulting analyst doing uh, you know, work on like a huge tech transformation. You know, I was assigned to do these trainings and I was assigned to do these uh, technical walkthroughs and help, you know, train the trainer programs and, you know, things like that. And at the time I thought, you know, I, I wish I could be doing more strategic work than this. And I did later in my consulting career. But when I was a, you know, newer analyst and I was doing these change management projects, I just didn't really have the context to understand the value that we were building. And then 
as I've grown my career at H1, it's been ironic because arguably one of the most important things I do in my leadership role at H1 is help with change management. And so that really has, has uh, flipped itself on its head. I think you bring up a good point because in consulting, like we pick up these like these things around like change management and mission, vision, values is kind of like being like kind of soft and like, okay, you got to you got to do it. But but you don't really understand why. And and then when you're in a real, you know, real environment where things things are really kind of like on the line, um, it totally matters. Right. Like even, you know, even if you're the CEO of a company and you decide to, oh, I'm going to I'm going to make this change tomorrow. It, it doesn't actually matter unless everybody in your organization is kind of bought in, right? Like it's, and I think that's like an interesting kind of thing for most people to get their head around that we just, we have zero appreciation for in, in a consulting context. But when you go into the kind of the world that you're in, obviously it is real and it matters. Yeah, totally. I, and you know, in retrospect, I just think when I was doing consulting work, it was typically for really big companies. Um, typically it was like a little harder to personalize the people that I was impacting and their concerns for what was going on. But when you're in a startup or a 20 person company or a 500 person company, the faces are so real, you know, like I've gone and met with enough of the employees that, you know, I, I understand and empathize with their concerns and I care a lot about them being able to you know, adapt to these changes because that's what's going to help us be successful as a, as an organization. Yeah. And I think people can see whether you're empathetic or not. Right. And I think that that kind of impacts their, you know, decisions around whether or not they're going to join the company or stay with the company and that sort of thing. Okay. So, so you're, you're employee number 15. What, what kind of, what kind of drew you to, uh, to H1 in the first place? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, to answer that, I really have to go back to me being a founder before. Um, but when I was when I started DeepBench, it was you know I went from consulting to business school and then effectively to starting a company. And when you are a founder of a new company, at the beginning there's nobody, right? It's just you and maybe your co-founder, and you're trying to build something out of nothing. And so you do you every question that comes up that you take for granted at any existing company, it comes up when you're starting a company. Say, well, what days are we going to work? How are we going to get work done? You know, what meetings do we have to have? What job descriptions are we going to have to have? How are we going to compensate people? Like all these questions come up, and uh, Deep Bench forced me to work through all those questions as a founder. And then um, that was a very personal experience. Like I had excellent relationships with my co-founders. I ha- I really you know felt uh, like. You know, I, I was people, you know, like your startup is kind of your baby and like you want to make it succeed and you want people in it to do well and you want to make sure that it that it lives after you leave and all that. And so when I was leaving that founder experience, uh, I had very high standards, but maybe different standards than a lot of people who are doing a job search. Uh, on one hand, I actually cared less about my compensation. Like compensation was a lower factor for me just because I had been like a bootstrap founder where I wasn't paying that myself that much as a founder at times. And I knew that I could be happy and compensation was not a driving factor for my happiness. Um, on the flip side, I was unwilling to sacrifice the uh, relationships, the, the quality of relationships that I have with my team and my former co-founders. And so when I was looking for something else to join, I knew that it, I wanted it to be early stage. I knew that I wasn't going to be a founder, but I wanted to find founders who really treated me as a peer and treated me as a partner. Uh, I was really 
worried about being treated as just another employee, you know, in a business. And so the things that I joined H1 for were effectively, I believed in the founders sufficiently to make a bet on them. And, you know, when I joined, it was right before we had funding. We didn't have a guarantee of funding. Um, they they did offer me like, you know, a reasonable salary, uh, you know, and like that was positive and whatnot. But really it was like a are these the people that I want to work with? Do I believe they have the values that will that I trust will build a company that I'm proud to be a part of? And are they going to treat me as a partner to help them build that vision? And when I found Ian and Ariel, the, the co-founders of H1, you know, no founders are perfect and you know everybody has their quirks and whatnot. But I just really felt that they had the right values and that they were ready to trust me and work and work with me. And we just kept building that relationship. Thanks for sharing that. I think that one of the things that I've observed, at least being in the recruiting kind of business, is almost always like the first question out of the gate is, what's the salary? What's the comp, right? And, and don't get me wrong, that, that's an important part of, 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 of things, right? And everybody has a different situation and different times in life. And, and I totally get that. But it shouldn't be the only focus. And um, <laughs> I, I find that often it is. Um, and like the one, I guess, resounding theme, and you picked up on it. Um, it's like, if you think about kind of like your energy or your happiness on a day-to-day basis, it tends to be more related to who you're working with um, than necessarily whether you're making an extra $10,000 a year or something like that. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I think like compensation, I think is like, it's, it's more okay to maybe negotiate based on that factor, the later stage you get. But you know, I, I knew I was targeting really early stage. I knew I was going to be targeting people who were taking a risk on me and I was taking a risk on them. And so in that sense, I was just much more focused on finding people who I could bet on, like, uh, allowing me to continue to be a leader in the company as it grew. And that was more, that potential was more important to me than the immediate compensation. And, uh, uh, I'm really happy with how it worked out. Like, I think it worked out really well, but when, when people, when I talk to folks and they might say, well, you know, how did you find that situation? It's like, I didn't know it was going to be a good situation. When I joined the company, I, I found founders that I was ready to bet on. They were, they were interested in taking a chance on me. Um, if I didn't perform, I probably wouldn't be the company anymore. You know, there's like some survivors bias here. Right. (laughs) But like, um, but like it it worked out and they kept betting on me and I kept betting on them. And so far we've been successful at growing a a great company. Yeah. And I guess one thing that I, I I guess you didn't mention, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it is you, you didn't talk about healthcare or the industry that they were focused on or anything like that. Um, was, was that intentional? Talk to me. Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, I, so my process for finding a company to work with was actually like pretty, uh, focused and like in depth. And what I mean by that is when I, when I decided I was, when I told my team at defense that I was going to leave, I waited until I left to tell the team. So my co-founders knew, but like employees, you know, didn't really know until after I had made the, made the exit or like, you know, I said, you know, this week is my last week basically. And, but when I left the company, I made a LinkedIn post and I said, Hey, you know, loved working on the company that I started. I'm interested in other things. If there's anybody who has interesting people that uh, I might be might be worth talking to, uh, make the introduction like I want to have the conversation and I'm gonna take a couple months to figure out what I do next. And so it sparked I was so open to introductions that it sparked like 
70 or 80 conversations where people were saying, I know somebody doing this cool thing. I know somebody doing that cool thing. And I had uh, for convo number one, I had zero filter. I was just taking every single conversation that somebody wanted to introduce me to. And in that process, I think I learned what I cared about and what I didn't care about because there were really cool opportunities that were coming up where somebody said, you know, there's this business and maybe, maybe you could be the CEO. Maybe you want to run this business. And then I think about it and say, well, you know, that's not really exciting to me, but like, why, you know, like, why is that not exciting to me? And so I started to piece together really fast, you know, what, what was driving me, what was not driving me. Um, that led to a handful of really promising opportunities that I think I could have been happy with each of them. But from the beginning of that process, industry was not something that I cared about. I said, you know, I will work in any industry. I just care mostly about the people I'm working with and the oper- the responsibilities. So like show me people that I can work really well with and, sh- and that will trust me with important things to do in the organization. And other than that, you know, like I, obviously I don't want to have like a, a moral, uh, you know, like any moral issues with the company, but like industry wasn't sure. that important yeah, to me. You, you aren't working for a cigarette company. Yes. <laughs> sure. And, yeah. um, for, and in healthcare, I actually found like, I wasn't looking for healthcare. I never worked in healthcare before the most exposure I had had to healthcare was I took a, uh, healthcare economics class from one of my prof- favorite professors at uh, MIT. And, um, you know, getting into it, I was always, I was learning everything about healthcare data. I was like negotiating data contracts for data that we were using for our foundation. I was researching all the competitors and trying to understand what they were doing and what we were doing and how that all fit together. Um, but I found healthcare to be a really fulfilling general mission. I, I feel, I feel positively fulfilled that, you know, if we can, uh, increase the accuracy of data within healthcare. It's going to have an end result of, you know, higher quality outcomes for uh, research, H- more treatments, more drugs that are helpful. If they're if the research is more efficient, they could be lower cost. So even though it's a little bit tangential, I just feel positive about making a difference in healthcare. And um, I didn't aim to be here, but I ended up here, and I'm really glad I did. Thanks for sharing that. I think. One thing that you mentioned that is really interesting is that you kind of went on this path of self-discovery by just being open to talking to a lot of different people. Um, what I guess what advice would you have for someone that's like, you know, maybe a little bit hesitant to, you know, reach out and like have those conversations the way you did it? Because it obviously seems very natural for you. Um, yes and no. I like, I, like I do love people. So talking to people is, is not something that I'm worried about, but I think I didn't know how to frame my experience effectively. And I got advice on how to frame my experience effectively. You know, when I was leaving a company that I had started, part of me was like, what are people going to think? They're going to, they, you know, they might, <laughs> yeah, well, does this guy fail? Yeah, like, right. well, what's going yeah, on yeah. here? And, yeah. and I think some of those questions are natural. And it's just like, you know, what are people going to think when I say I started a company, but I didn't work on it for 10 years? or I didn't work or, you know, it didn't turn into a unicorn, you know, what are people going to think about that? And, um, I got advice from other people. Like I got advice from other founders that left businesses. They started and said, how did you message it? Like, how did you, you know, what, how did you find what was next? Did you start looking before you told people you were leaving? Did you, um, leave and then take a, like a time off to find the right thing? And I got some really good advice. And the advice that I got was, uh, it, first, it's impossible basically to be like an effective founder while you're job searching. So um, I, I very quickly decided I'm not going to do any job searching until I formally tell my employees that I'm I'm not here anymore. And um, 
then when I entered that time off period, it really was like a period of, I I relaxed, I did some self-discovery, I engaged in a lot of these conversations to figure out what I did want to do next. I was, I was certainly open to a lot of different things, but within two or three weeks, I had a pretty good idea of um, the things that were important. And the things that were important to me were, I really had appetite still for very early stage. I wanted to know that the company had visibility or aggressive plans to fundraise and enter hyper growth. I wanted to find founders that I believed in, and I wanted to find founders that were willing to bet on me as like a early leader in their company. And I, and I found that great combination H1, and then it worked and then it played out. And it, you know, there were other companies that I probably could have worked with that, you know, would have been entirely differently impacted by the pandemic and whatnot. So there is a a luck element here, but I do feel good about the criteria that I landed on. That's great. No, and I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I think it's, I think it's also that you were intrigued enough to kind of like ask for their advice in terms of framing it and just being honest about the situation as well. I, I, I think that can go a long way. Um, okay. So, so, uh, you know, you, you mentioned deep vent bench a few times. Um, and it, it's, 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 it's what initially kind of like caught my eye of actually about reaching out to you, Devin, is because I thought it was such a cool, cool kind of business to start after cons- consulting. Um, could you just tell our listeners kind of like what the concept was and, and how you came up with the idea with, with your co-founder? Yeah. So when I was, so DeepBench is an expert network company. And basically we built a platform where on the one hand, you recruit industry experts who are in high demand from consultants or uh, investors, a lot, a lot of private equity groups, and then also uh, designers. You know, everybody wants to talk to experts and when they want to talk to them, they usually need them very fast. They're usually informing business critical decisions. And there's generally high willingness to pay for finding the right expert very quickly. And so that's the business that DeepBench is in. And I actually... I, the idea wasn't mine. The idea was one of my co-founder. His, his name was Ishi, and Ishi was our CEO. And uh, I met Ishi through MIT Sloan, and he was kind of playing around with the deep bench idea, but basically needed help executing. You know, like the idea was in existence. Like there's other company, other bigger companies that do this. Our bet was really like, can we innovate on it, and can we do it in a way that is either differentiated or lower cost. And that needed a lot of execution to be able to experiment and see, see what we can grow there. And, uh, you know, I'm, I can be a strong operator and person who basically gets shit done. And that's the role I played as like an early founder where, you know, Ishii brought the idea. I helped, I helped Ishii execute really early on. We started generating revenue pretty quickly, largely initially through Ishii and my own efforts. And then we, you know, leverage that initial traction to recruit other people, you know, uh, pitch them on the potential, you know, if we're making this much money without any technology, imagine what we can do when you help us build technology, (laughs) you know, stuff like that. And uh, it just, I I think like playing around with an an idea is one thing when you're uh, thinking of being an entrepreneur. For us, the turning point was really the point where we committed to doing it instead of taking more traditional jobs uh, after business school. And so in business school, there's a lot of opportunities in front of you. There's a lot of paths that you could take that safely make you a good amount of money. But for us, where we started to really take off was when we said, I know there's other opportunities. I don't care about those other opportunities. I'm going to commit to this and you know see what we can turn this into. And um, 
it was in many ways like a personal commitment that she and I made together to, you know, like see where it could go and uh, ended up working on it for three years, three, a little over three years together. And um, I'm still close with Ishii and my other co-founders. And it was just like a very formative experience uh, starting a company that way. And how did you attract your first client, right? Because you, you guys built a two-sided network, a two-sided platform. And that is a, that's a, it, it, okay, it's, it sounds great once it's built, but it's really hard to actually get off the ground because you're trying to manage, uh, you know, the demand as well as the supply. And there's tons of nuances that go into each of those. How, how did you kind of like get your first client and what, what did that look like? Yeah. The first customer, so Ishii, Ishii was kind of our first salesman, but uh, the first customer we got through Sloan, actually. So somebody came and gave a presentation. They were the type of client that would be interested in doing you know, these types of calls. It was like a boutique consulting company or private equity shop. And um, Ishii said, hey, you know, we're starting this business. If you just throw us a bone on the next opportunity that comes up, give us a chance. If we fail to execute, you know, don't pay us if we execute pay us. And, um, you know, they said, yeah, sure. We'll get, we'll give you a chance. And so, you know, a couple of weeks later they said, Hey, we're doing a research project. I think it was actually in healthcare. They said, you know, we're doing, we need to talk to healthcare experts and in our MIT Sloan class of MBA students, you know, a lot of people come from experienced careers, you know, like people work for three to five years and then go to a school like Sloan. And one of our classmates had, you know, the right experience. So we put our classmate in front of the client and said, what about this expert? And they said, they, they look perfect. Let's talk to them. And said, like, cool. You know, that's, you know, uh, our first revenue. <laughs> that's, uh, Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And what about, okay, so then, okay, so that's, that's kind of call it client one. Um, what about in terms of kind of like scaling the business, right? Cause you, you can kind of do, you, there's a lots of different ways you can kind of like get referrals from existing clients. You could grow within an account. You can do a lot of SEO and marketing. How, how did you guys think about sales and marketing? A lot of it was, uh, a lot of it was direct outreach at the beginning. So really we just, we found more and more like, uh, people who are willing we we kept up our hey try us and if we fail you won't pay us and if we succeed you'll pay us we kept that up i think i think even until now i think they still do that to this day for in in a lot of ways but once you compelling value yeah, yeah yeah and so in that way it wasn't too hard to get like a foot in the door um because some of the competitors did have like upfront contract requirements that just operationally they require because of how they set up their legacy business right but for but for us we were just ready to hustle and like earn that earn that business we had faith in the process that we built and so you know it wasn't terribly difficult to have people try us um and then that process led to that uh, funnel of like having people try you taught us who the best clients were. Like some some clients started coming back and were really easy to work with and really loved our product, you know, kept spending more and more money. And we said, hey, these people love something about us. And then there were other types of customers that, you know, would try us and not come back. And we'd say, hey, why didn't you come back? And they said, well, you know, uh, this, I have this issue, you know, or like I didn't like the, you know, I, they were very selective about the expert they wanted or they were tourists. Yeah. You know, we call them yeah, they were they were trying it out. Maybe they were just like trying to get a short term need, but they didn't have recurring needs, you know, something like that. But then we, over time, just through so much customer interactions, we honed in on the persona of customers that were the best customers for us to have, and then we adjusted and started pivoting all of our 
BizDev and outreach to the best company uh, customer personas. Uh, and so we just kind of narrowed in on who, who worked best with us with what we had. That's great. Um, no, I, and, I, and I even remember, not, I mean, it wasn't too long ago in consulting, right? When it was just GLG was like the, the big player. And now, now you've got a, a lot of really kind of like formidable options like like deep bench out there it was i'll say i'll say it was fun like um we knew that there were the big incumbents and there's like a few names that everybody knows and stuff like that and like it's kind of a unsexy industry in many ways but like we were kind of like a a cool like up and coming you know mit take on like a industry and so we got some good press and it was fun to like hear that, you know, like, oh, like that, you know, somebody would be like, oh, I'm, I'm an employee at other company. And like, you were the topic of our leadership meeting today or something like that. It's like, yeah, that's right. You know, like that feels good as an entrepreneur to, to feel like people are watching what you're doing and paying attention to what you're, what you're doing. And um, maybe in some cases worried about what we were doing. And I think that that type of, uh, that type of, um, you know, energy is, is just like builds energy. Like it makes you excited to kind of uh, keep momentum up and try to keep making change happen. And, and that was really fun. I respect the competitors in the industry. We, you know, we got to know quite a few of them. Um, but, you know, it was like, a, it was just a really fun thing to be a part of. And, and I guess that kind of like brings me to the next topic, which is you successfully transitioned from consulting to being an, an, an entrepreneur. So obviously there was business school kind of in between, but, um, but it's, it's, it's surprisingly actually, it's the exception, not the rule. Let's put it that way. Um, what, I guess, talk to me a little bit about kind of like how you made that transition. What was difficult? Some of the things you probably didn't see coming, all, all that stuff. Yeah. So um, I'll say that I don't like, uh, consulting was good for me. It wasn't excellent for me. Like, um, you know, I, I, I think, uh, when I was in college, yeah, w- when I was, when I was in college, I actually like, I started some entrepreneur, like I, I tried to start a company in college. It didn't really work out. I won some pitch competitions and that was really exciting, but like, it was not like a viable business at that point in time based on the technology available and whatnot. Um, but it was, I was really excited by that, trying to start a company experience. But then at the school I was at, I kind of had this culture. It was like, well, you know, the culture, the culture in the classes I was taking was, you know, the smartest people go into consulting, like the best, like if you, if you can go to consulting, why would you not go into consulting? And I kind of picked up on some of those cultural, you know, beliefs. And then when I got an offer to go to Accenture, in my head, I just thought, you know, I'd be, I'd be the dumbest person alive if I didn't, you know, go to consulting, if I had this opportunity. And I was really excited that they were moving me out to Boston. And so, you know, I, I was excited to go to Boston. I was excited to try consulting, but admittedly, it was kind of more of like an external pressure. Like I didn't, I didn't have any reason to believe that consulting was right for me other than I thought it was something that smart people did that like provided good career paths, but I didn't really know what that meant. So I ended up, uh, at Accenture doing, you know, Boston, consulting in Boston. And early on, like, I don't think it was a fit, you know, like my first year as an analyst, I think like there were more people telling me I should leave the company, not in like a bad performance way, but like in a, like, I would talk to them and say, Hey, like, 
here's the type of work I'm doing. I'm trying to do this type of work. This is what gets me excited. I'm trying to, I'm trying to find work that gets me excited. And I remember I'd only been there like three or four months and I was trying to, I was trying to like make a case for the business to do some like entrepreneurial initiative or something like that. You know, like let's mentor entrepreneurs or let's support entrepreneurs. And some, somebody I was talking to, they'd been there a few years more than me at that point. I'd only been there a few months and they said something, they said, well, I, you know, I said, well, I'm going to try to do this and it'll probably take me five or six months to do this. And they were like, yeah, if you're still here in five or six months. And I was like, wait, what do you mean? Like, I'm, I'm doing good in my job. Like, you know, like there's no risk of me. Like, you know, this is not an issue. And they're like, no, no. I just mean like, if you want to be here in five or six months, like, it sounds like you don't want to be here. It sounds like you want to be doing something else. And I was like, oh, that person doesn't know anything. You know, like I'm going to prove that I'm good at consulting and whatnot. And I, I stayed, ended up staying for three and a half years, be, partially because I did find very compelling work within consulting during my second year. Uh, and then I hung out for the promotion that I wanted and started applying to business schools and, and things like that. But, um, you know, I don't think it was a natural fit. I think if I spent the last six or seven years of my career still in consulting, I think it would have, I would have been fine. Like I would have had a fine career. I don't think I would have found like my superpower. I don't think I would have really excelled the same way that I have in like in an entrepreneurial environment. Um, I wouldn't, even if I had a good career, I just don't think I would have realized some of my unique capabilities that I found in a, in a different startup environment. I like how you described it as good, but not excellent, because I've never been able to describe how I feel about my own experience there as well. Um, And and similarly, I was always looking for something different while while I was there. And and like, um, I, I guess, though. You, you mentioned you got on some projects that you did enjoy. Um, what tell tell me about those? Oh yeah, so I one of my favorite projects for a year. I worked on nonprofit strategy projects, which was uh, you know like not the most lucrative projects to be on within the firm, but it was really small teams working on really you know uh, important, impactful things, uh, short term projects, you know two two to four months per project. Um, really felt positive about the work that I was doing. Also, usually volunteered with the nonprofits that I was supporting, and just you know had close relationships with the C- the visionary CEOs or founders of those companies. Saw some good examples. Saw some examples of things I di- I didn't want to do. You know, you learn from the good and the bad. But like, uh, it was just really meaningful work. And I think some of the pieces looking back that made it meaningful were really high impact on a small team. I got to know my colleagues really well. I got to know the uh, imp- the end user very well, like the people that the nonprofit was supporting. And I got to be like a trusted partner in their business. And I think that was the same thing that ended up drawing me to entrepreneurship where I was building a company or I was helping founders build a company, H1. And so certainly there's some learning there, but those were absolutely my my favorite work that I did um, when I was at in, in consulting. And what advice would you have for folks? And we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier in this episode, but you know, you're a consultant, you're thinking about kind of making a transition out of consulting. You, you've had some good experience so far, but you, you know, you want to leave. What advice would you have for, for folks that are kind of like considering a career change? 
So, you know, my approach has changed. When, so when I was in consulting, my approach was, I'm going to hedge my bets, right? Like I'm going to, I, you know, like I was interested in exploring other options. I was, you know, waiting to get a promotion and I knew I, knew I would get promotion news in a few months. And I was like, I'm going to hedge my bets. I'm going to apply to business schools, like top business schools, see if I can generate any options there. And if that option doesn't work, you know, I'll see the result of my promotion. And if that doesn't work out the way I want, I'll switch companies and go to the job market. You know, like I had like plan A, B, and C. And it was very logical, like the way I approached it. But that at that point in time, it was like a consultant had made it. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> And, and, you know, that gave me comfort at that point in time that I, I, you know, it did help me like do what I wanted to do. So I'm grateful for that. The flip side is when I was at business school and I decided to start a company or when I was leaving deep bench and ended up joining H1, my approach was totally different, which was basically just like, I'm going to aggressively shut down options that I don't think I'm interested in and like basically, uh, create. Uh, a scenario that forces me to pursue what I actually care about. And um, I would personally recommend that. Like, I think that path has worked out very, very well for me, but there's validity to both frameworks and both paths. But I I think um, there was a distinct, I'll I'll share an example, but there was a distinct moment where um, when I was thinking of starting deep bench, you know, I was, I was, uh, starting to work with Ishii. I knew about this idea. I knew that it was an option that I can kind of commit to building building a company. But there were still like traditional internships that were interesting to me. I was like interviewing at some really cool companies that had, you know, would have had me on like cool technology and, you know, sexy tech companies that was appealing to me. And uh, I had like kind of a moment of clarity and I, and I just thought like, I, I know I'm going to regret it in five or 10 years. If I don't take this chance to try and start a company, I know I will, I know I will regret that. Um, and I also know that logically I'm probably the most risk tolerant when at this point in my life than I am later in my life. And so it was kind of a, a different assessment. And the assessment was, if I can't do this now, then when, when the hell will I ever do it? You know? And that kind of like shook me into action. I was like, all right, I'm going to do it now. <laughs> you know? And I, I took a leap. It was, it felt risky at first. You kind of build that muscle as you engage in that. But, um, you know, that's, that's the risk. That's, that's what I would propose other people do. Like ask yourself, what are you going to regret not doing? Um, be willing to take a risk now because you are even, even as, risk, you know, whatever your framework is, like you're much more likely to take a risk now than you will later, you know? Uh, and I think, uh, if you know that about yourself and something you want to do, you know, go for it now is my approach. Yeah. And psychologically it's been proven that we tend, tend to regret the things that we didn't do, not the things that we did do. Right. So I, I, I've talked to tons of people that have made, call it like career blemishes where it's like oh shit i joined i joined this company for six months and like you know i worked with assholes and you know i I regret but but then look then look what happened right or or then i that led to this and it's like it's it's in the grand scheme of things it is a little bit less risky than you think and to your point earlier on it's your, your, your appetite for it is bigger, right? So it's like, okay, you don't have kids, you don't have dog, you don't have a wife, right? It's like, it's like, oh, go for it, right? So um, I love that. Um, speaking of other advice that you have for us, so we are building, uh, constantly building the, the Beyond Consulting Library. So um, 
curious to get uh, your view uh, on recommendations for any books for our listeners. That's a really good question. I'm actually like a, a poor recommender of like uh, content. Like, um, you know, my content consumption is largely Reddit, which is hard to recommend to somebody. Uh, but I, I will say that I've tried to start. So I read a few books every year, but there's a book, um, there's a book that I really love. And this is not a business book. So if people are looking for business books, this is not it. Perfect. I actually prefer it when like, we, we get the most oddball answers and like some of them are, are, are super good, with the, the less they have to do with business. All right, cool. So my favorite book, I, I and maybe it's an important to note, like I don't rewatch movies. I don't like to reread books, but this book I have reread and it's... um. It's called A Walk in the Woods by Bill Bryson. It's about uh, him trying to hike the Appalachian Trail, which goes through New England, you know, through Boston's area. But it's just like a hilarious, uh, you know, st- narrative around history of the La- Appalachian Trail, history, uh, history of national parks in America. Uh, and but then also just like this, you know really funny author trying to hike a uh, three, two or 3000 mile trail, <laughs> you know, that like funny encounters on the way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. It's going on the website. He's written other travel books too, but a walk in the woods, a walk in the woods is my favorite one. Okay. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks for suggesting it. Um, speaking of, of websites, um, you know, um, if we want to get in touch with you, Devin, or learn more about kind of H1 uh, or Deep Bench, could you could you kind of give uh, – what's the best way, I guess? H1 is at h1.co. And um, people, if people want to find me, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, there's only a couple Devin Basingers out there. So if you, if you Google Devin Basinger, yeah, I think you'll be able to figure out who I am. And then um, Deep Bench is at deepbench.io. And, uh, you know, I, either Deep Bench or H1 would love for you to check them out. Uh, at H1, we're always hiring too. So if there's people who are job searching, looking for jobs, you know, check us out. And, uh, you know, for Deep Bench, if you want to be an expert, you want to be an industry expert, it's a great place to go. And, uh, you know, we'd love for people to check both out. Yeah, check out, check out H1 for those of our listeners that are interested in either healthcare, data, or joining kind of a rapidly scaling startup. And for those of our listeners that are joining for the first time, if you could please subscribe to Spotify or Apple on our podcast so you get notified of new episodes. And if you're looking for past episodes, it's going to be www.beyondconsulting.info. And then lastly, if you want to get in touch with me directly or anyone at ECA, it's going to be eca-partners.com. Um, Devin, thank you so much for joining us today. It, this has been a fun conversation. I've really enjoyed it, and I think our listeners have too. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the invite. So uh, thanks for all the listeners. Thanks to you, Ken. It's been great. Thanks so much. All right. And everyone else, until next time. Thank you.